0: Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. This morning we'll read from verse 1 to verse 16. And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, for what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she has wrought a good work upon me. For you have the poor always with you, but me you have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Truly I say unto you, Wherever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman has done be pulled for a memorial of her. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we approach now the passion narrative of your son, we pray that you would give us hearts and minds uh, that receive the things that are spoken here in your word. We thank you for the truth that sets us free. We thank you for the death of Jesus Christ and what that means for us and the hope and the joy and the peace that he brings. We pray, Lord, this morning you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear. Help us to realize who we are listening to and to listen accordingly. And Lord, we, we want you to be blessed and honored and glorified in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we arrive now at the last section of the Gospel of Matthew. In our series on Matthew we've come far and here we are now at the final three chapters Matthew 26, 27 and 28 which narrate the betrayal, the trial, the death and the resurrection of Jesus This has been called the passion of Jesus Christ The passion of Jesus Christ means the sufferings of Christ The passion narrative is what we're now Going to look at. And this passion of Jesus Christ is celebrated all over the world. It is the hope of all Christians. Without this passion, we wouldn't have no hope. And it's no doubt, it is no doubt, brothers and sisters, the most important part of all the Gospels, of all the Gospel books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All the Gospels record the passion narratives. Because, you know, uh, uh, you and I both know that um, there's many stories in the life of Jesus that not all the Gospel writers record, right? Sometimes Matthew writes something that Mark, Luke, and John don't and, and all the others and so forth. But all of the Gospel writers record the passion, the sufferings of Christ, and they all spend a lot of time on it because it's so important. The passion of Christ is the core of Christianity. One German theologian in the 19th century Martin Kaler wrote this, one could call the Gospels passion narratives with extended introductions. <laughs> okay, That's how important the passion narratives are in the Gospels. Without them, there would be no Messiah. All you would have is a man who showed up and did some teachings, and teachings, by the way, that make no sense if there was no passion. Jesus, would not, the, Jesus the Christ would not exist His teachings would make no sense. He would be an incoherent babbler and you and I would not know about him. He would be lost in the history of time if there were no passion and just his teachings. But because of his death and because of his resurrection and the things that we're going to read in these final three chapters over the next eight or nine weeks, it is because of these that we know Christ that Christ is real, that his teachings make sense, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, it's all because of this, his sufferings and his resurrection. J.C. Ryle writes this, So far we have read of his sayings and his doings. We are now about to read of his sufferings and his death. So far we have seen him as the great prophet. We are now about to see Christ as the great high priest. It is a portion of scripture which ought to be read with peculiar reverence and attention. The place whereon we stand is holy ground. Here we see how the seed of the woman bruised the serpent's head. Here we see the great sacrifice to which all the sacrifices of the Old Testament had long pointed. Here we see how the blood was shed which cleanses from all sin. And the Lamb slain who takes away the sins of the world. Now, if you're a Christian, you rejoice in the fact that Jesus' blood cleanses you from all sin. Amen? Amen. And now we're going to see it. Now we're going to watch what happened. As J.C. Ryle writes, See how the blood was shed which cleanses from all sin. So as we proceed to read the Passion Narratives, may we proceed with reverence and attention over the next eight or nine weeks. As we finish up the Gospel of Matthew. This morning, I'm going to break up the section that we read into three parts and set the tone for the rest of our time in Matthew as we go over the Passion Week to the end of chapter 28. This morning, the three parts we're going to look at involve these three things. First, Jesus' Passion was appointed, Jesus' Passion was appreciated, and Jesus' Passion was appalling. These are the three things we're going to look at this morning. Number one, Jesus' passion was appointed. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 26, which we looked at. It came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that is the Olivet Discourse, that he said unto his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Now this isn't the first time that Jesus has spoken to his disciples about his death and about the betrayal and about his sufferings, right? Since, Ma- since Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has been announcing to his disciples the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. The Son of Man is going to be uh, crucified. And he even says he'll rise from the dead on the third day. So it's not the first time that he has announced his sufferings, but it is the first time that Jesus declares when it's going to happen. Jesus now looks at his disciples and he says, in two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be betrayed and will be crucified. In two days. Can you imagine announcing the day of your death? How many of you can do that? In two days I'm going to be stoned to death here in Logan. How do I know that? Unless it was a part of God's plan. Now before when Jesus spoke about his sufferings, there was certainly a hint of destiny. He says the Son of Man must be betrayed and must crucified, But now it's it's unmistakable. His sufferings are determined by God. How else could Jesus have known the day of his death and what would happen in two days unless Jesus knew the plan of God for his life and for his sufferings and for his death and resurrection? One might say, well, okay, he could maybe guess that he was going to die. You can see the Pharisees are, uh, you know, Gnashing their teeth at him, and you can kind of see and you can predict that they're going to kill him. But can you predict the day? And a most unlikely day. Consider that Jesus says to his disciples, In two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be betrayed and crucified. And look at verse 5. What do the leaders say? They say, Not on the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. So it's an unlikely day that Jesus chooses. He says, it's going to be on the Passover, we're going to die. And the leaders are conspiring to put him to death. and saying, not on the, fe- the feast, because we don't want it to be a scene. We don't want it to be this big deal. It, it might be- become an uproar. But Jesus knew the plan, and it would be at that time. You see, this was a red-hot moment in history. This was a red-hot moment in time. You remember Daniel prophesied that the Messiah would come. The Messiah would come 69 weeks of years after the rebuilding of, the, of Jerusalem, after the Babylonian captivity. And we have come to that very moment now. If you are a student of prophecy, you know that Daniel has predicted that the Messiah would come and die at this very week in time. So this makes it a very hot moment in time on God's calendar. A very important moment. Everything that is about to happen is determined. It doesn't matter what the leaders say. It doesn't matter that they don't want it to be on the feast. It's going to be on the feast because this is God's time. The Passover, Jesus says, is in two days and the Son of Man will die on that day. Now, this is not a coincidence that it will fall upon the Passover. God chose this vividly symbolic day for the Messiah's death, which atones for the sins of the world, and that brings us salvation. Not a coincidence that it's on the Passover. You'll remember that the Passover, on that day, Israel, God's people, would remember the redemption that they obtained from Egypt through the sacrifice, This. The Lord's Passover and the Lord's sacrifice that he provided for them. Not only redemption from Egypt, but redemption from the angel of death. Because the angel of death was coming to slay the Israelites as well if they didn't have that blo- the blood of the lamb upon their door. And so the Passover is a perfect picture picture of the sacrifice of Christ. Through Jesus' death on the cross, we are redeemed, not just from a physical slavery, but from our sins. And from the law and from death, because the true Lamb of God was sacrificed on that day on our behalf, and the angel, the destroying angel of death, God's wrath, passes over us because that wrath was already passed upon another, Jesus Christ. What a perfect day for Jesus to die! A perfect symbolism of his sacrifice. Passover was also the beginning of the year for Israel, it was the beginning of of Israel's existence as God's people and as a nation. And so it's a fitting day also for Christ to die because everything begins with the Passover for Israel. And so for us also as Christians, Christ's death is our beginning, is it not? It's because he died that we are new creations in Christ. It's because he died that we are the people of God who believe in him. He constitutes us as his people when we believe in him through his death and everything that we that we do and everything about our identity has its reference to him and his sacrifice. This is what the Passover also shows us. And another thing that Passover shows us is that the Passover was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham and told Abraham that his Descendants would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but that he would come and fulfill his word to Abraham. And so the Passover was not just God looking down and saying, hey, I feel bad for these people, I'm going to come. The Passover was God fulfilling his promise, his covenant, in sending Moses and delivering them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so also the, the death of Jesus Christ for our sins was the fulfillment of God's promise to the world that God would send a Savior and would bless the world and reverse the curse. The Passover is not a coincidence. It was not a coincidence that Jesus died, but it's full of meaning. Just consider with me this morning how amazing it is that Jesus' passion, everything we're going to read here in these three chapters, his betrayal, his trial, his death, and his resurrection was in the mind of God before creation. Isn't that amazing? Before God even spoke, let there be light, before God separated the water from the land, before God made the animals and put man on the earth, he had a plan, he had appointed Jesus Christ to die. He was in the mind of God, his sufferings, his death and his resurrection, even from before the creation of the world. What an amazing purpose that this world has. Amen? It wasn't just some uh, science experiment that God was doing that he later threw into his closet never to be seen again. What an amazing purpose this world has. Everything about this world is about Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says that by Jesus Christ were all things created by him and for him. Is that not amazing? Even the... Bugs are created for this purpose. Everything is created for him. But we see in verse 3 and 4 another plan going on. Another plan by the leadership of Israel. The supposed power in Israel at the time of Jesus, at this red hot moment in history, you have a second plan. Although it's not from before creation that this plan is being concocted, it's in Caiaphas' house. Kind of anticlimactic in light of uh, plan from before the creation of the world. From eternities past, God planned for Jesus to die. Now at Caiaphas' house, the leaders of Israel are gathering to plan when he will die. Josephus tells us that Caiaphas was the high priest in Israel from 18 AD to 36 AD. That's 17 years he was the high priest in Israel. He was one of the most powerful men in Israel in the time of Jesus. But as Jesus said to Pilate, also one of the most powerful men in Israel at the time of Jesus, you have no power over me, you have no power at all, but what has been given you from the Father. So Caiaphas also and all the leaders of Israel had no power but what had been given them by the Father. Why did the leadership of Israel want to kill Jesus? We see here that they're plotting to kill. Why is it they wanted to kill Jesus? Envy, jealousy? Tells us in the scriptures they hated Jesus. They were envious. And if you read the Gospel of Matthew, if you go back through, you're going to see it's pretty clear why they hated Jesus because Jesus preached the truth Jesus preached things that the Pharisees and the leadership of Israel wouldn't have appreciated very much. Jesus called them hypocrites. Jesus told the people that you have to be greater than these people in order to get into heaven. They're not even going to make it. The truth is, the Pharisees did not hate Jesus because he didn't meet their description of what a king should look like, as many people think. If Jesus had come along as a traveling preacher who rides on a donkey, but if Jesus had supported them They would have had no problem with Jesus at all. They hated Jesus, brothers and sisters, for righteousness' sake. Like the prophets before Jesus. They hated the prophets for righteousness' sake because the prophets came and preached righteousness to the people. Let's remember what that means. The Pharisees taught the people that God required you to be righteous in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the Pharisees did not teach perfect righteousness. And so the Pharisees convinced the people that they themselves were righteous and that they themselves had to follow their example. But the prophets came to the people and said, no, you are sinners. No, you don't keep the law. And they were hated for it. And Jesus now preaches that all men are guilty before God. Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 7, the world doesn't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that the works thereof are evil. And so the Pharisees concluded Jesus to be a false teacher and a troubler of the nation because he was going against their teaching and their authority. And so they planned to kill him. So they planned and God planned. They said, not on this day. And God said, on this day. And God's plan prevailed, as we know. God's ways prevail over man's ways. And in the passion of Christ as we go through the passion of Christ, we see this human side and we see this divine side. We see the human side where men are hating Jesus and they're sinning and God holds them responsible for their actions against Jesus Christ. But yet God uses their sin as part of His plan and God's plan prevails. We also see in the passion that no one takes Christ's life from Him, but that Christ laid down His life in obedience to the Father. Because Jesus could have prevented it all. They came at him with sticks and torches and swords. Jesus says, I could call down legions of angels upon you. You have no power over me. That doesn't relieve you of the responsibility of your sin. But this is God's plan. This is God's will, not yours. And so, when the Apostle Peter is preaching in Acts, the very first sermon to uh, those gathered in Jerusalem, he says that Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God and you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified him. Jesus' passion was appointed by God. Let's remember that as we go through Matthew 26, 27, and 28, that this is God's plan from before the foundation of the world for our salvation. Number two, Jesus' passion was appreciated. And we come to a remarkable incident in this chapter, in our section, and it's important to the passion. It's the story of the woman with the alabaster box of perfume. Now, there's a similar story in John chapter 12, and John and Matthew are actually both describing the same story, although John gives us a few additional details. For example, John tells us that the woman that came to Jesus with the alabaster box of perfume, was actually Mary, the the sister of Martha. You'll remember them from the Gospel of John. Well, One might say, well, if it was Mary, the sister of Martha, why doesn't Matthew mention that it was Mary? Why does he just say it was a woman? Well, the the fact is, is that Matthew never mentions either Mary or Martha at all in his Gospel. This is not a figure that we know from the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew simply says, it was a woman. Also interesting to note is that in the Gospel of John, this incident happens six days before the Passover. Actually, this incident happens immediately before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So Jesus hasn't even come into Jerusalem, he's just about to. He's at Bethany, right over the hill. And that night, Mary comes and anoints Jesus with this perfume. And so one might ask, well, what's it doing here? We've already passed the triumphal entry. We're only two days away from the Passover. And what we see here is that Matthew is jumping back in time in order to help us understand the context. Because right before this story, and right after this incident of Mary breaking the alabaster box, is uh, the leadership consulting to destroy Jesus and Judas' betrayal of Jesus. And this story it helps us understand Judas' betrayal. It's actually the key to it. This is the story that broke the camel's back, you could say. This is the incident that caused Judas to go out and betray Jesus. So, first of all, Matthew brings up the story to help us understand the betrayal. Second of all, Matthew brings up the story to present a, a, uh, a contrast. You've got hatred for Jesus on every side and a beautiful story of love for Jesus in the midst. Or as A.B. Bruce writes, hatred and baseness on either hand and true love in the midst. So it's amazing that we see the story placed where we do. Verse 6, Jesus is in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. He's obviously not a leper anymore. Uh, There wouldn't be a party at the leper's house if he was still a leper. This is obviously someone that Jesus healed, but he was continually called that just to uh, because that was he was a famous person or that's the way that you would recognize who he was simon the leper and mary or here just the woman but I'll refer to her as mary she comes to jesus while he's sitting down at meal at the meal with an alabaster box or an alabaster jar filled with an expensive ointment now, alabaster, just so you can picture it in your head, imagine Jesus sitting there eating with the others at this party. And Mary comes in carrying a white translucent marble jar full of, as, it doesn't tell us what it was here, it just says a very costly uh, perfume. But in Mark and John, we know it was what's called nard or spike nard. Spike nard was a very expensive perfume that was imported into Israel. Very precious, Matthew tells us. In fact, the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that uh, using the exact phrase, an alabaster jar of spikenard or nard was a gift that you would give to a king. It was so expensive and precious. So that's that's kind of the caliber of this gift. Very precious, Matthew tells us. And Matthew tells us that Mary came in and poured the the ointment upon Jesus' head. And it must have been a lot of perfume that she poured on his head. For two reasons we know that it was a lot. Number one, in John, John tells us that it went onto his feet and that Mary washed his feet with her hair. Matthew doesn't give us that detail. But she pours the ointment onto his head, which falls down onto his body and onto his feet. Also, we know it was a lot because the disciples are indignant about it and say, "Why the waste?" And in Mark and John, we find out how just about how expensive this is. They say, "This perfume could have been sold for about 300 denarii." Now, if you remember in the in some of the sermons in the past, we've mentioned that a denarius is a day's wage, okay? So, if we translate that into modern-day currency, a day's wage at minimum wage is about $58. So it's about a year's worth of work, which comes out to about $17,000 that she just poured upon Jesus' head. Okay, $17,000 worth of perfume upon Jesus' head. That's a lot of money. Perfumes are expensive. I was uh, looking online at the cost of perfume these days, and the most expensive perfume in the world, is Clive Christian's Imperial Majesty perfume and it prices at $210,000, this perfume. (laughs) $2,000 per ounce. $2,000 per ounce. Okay? So think about it. $2,000 per ounce and she poured a lot of it onto the head which flowed down onto the feet. It must have been quite a substantial amount of perfume that she poured onto Jesus. This was truly an incredible thing that Mary did. It was not your cheap dollar store perfume that she poured upon his head. Might this explain the disciples' reaction? Think about it if you were there for a moment and you realized that this perfume cost about $17,000. It says in in our text that they had indignation over this woman. How many of you would relate to that? Indignation over this How many of you can relate to that? Have you ever seen somebody, what you think, wasted something and you feel the indignation? The disciples immediately, all of them, assumed it was a waste. They didn't think about it. They didn't consider it. They just immediately jumped to the conclusion, it's a waste. And they say, why the waste? To what purpose is this waste? And they could probably think of many reasons why you shouldn't waste $17,000 of perfume in just a single moment like this. Probably their best reason they put forth. You could have sold this and at least given it to the poor. That was their best reason. You could have helped a lot of people with this money. But Jesus, and here's the amazing thing Jesus doesn't see it the way that the disciples do. In verse 10, Jesus says, Why are you troubling her? She has wrought a beautiful deed. Upon me, The disciples are missing something in this picture. And I think here we can draw a principle that's true today. There are many things that we think are wastes that Christ doesn't. And there are many things that we think aren't wastes that Christ does think are wastes. Do you agree with that statement, do you think? I think that's probably true. And it's an, it is a great question. The Bible asks such great questions, or it poses to us such great questions. The disciples say, why the waste? What is the purpose of this waste? And I think that is a great question. What would be the reason to do that? What would be a good reason to waste 17, or not to waste, but to pour out $17,000 worth of perfume on Jesus' head? What would compelled Mary to do that and why would Jesus think that was a good thing? Because brothers and sisters, it wasn't good business. Right? It wasn't good business. It wasn't good home improvement. It wasn't good, it wasn't even good humanitarianism, was it? Pouring out $17,000 of perfume wasn't good humanitarianism as the disciples point out. But what it was, was it was good love. Amen? You see that? It was an act of love for Jesus. It was an act of love toward Jesus. And according to Jesus, this love for him trumps all others, all other things. Jesus is more interested in love than in business, home improvement, and humanitarianism. Jesus' explanation in verse 11 and 12 is that helping the poor is a good thing, certainly, and you'll always have the poor with you. But we need to recognize when something special is before us that won't always be there. And this was an act of love, seeing that special thing that was before Mary. She did this. And we can miss this. We can spend a lot of time and a lot of resources on common good things and miss things that are special before us. What if Jesus were before you? Now, put yourself in Mary's shoes for a moment. Jesus is before you, and Jesus has been announcing that he's going to die. And so Mary is, is there in the house. Mary knows that Jesus is going to die, Mary loves Christ. Mary is sad that he's going to die and she knows it's just about to happen and Mary wants to do something to bless Jesus. Mary, she's feeling the sorrow that he's going to die. She's feeling love for Jesus. She knows he's about to die and she wants to do something for her Messiah. She wants to do something for Christ. And she thinks to herself, ah, perfect. I have an alabaster perfume back home and I can go get this and bring it to him. She says, yes, And she runs home, she gets the alabaster jar of perfume and she comes to Jesus and she pours it upon him. And what do you think Jesus was thinking at that moment? you think Jesus was thinking, what's all this about? He understood what was going on, right? This was an expression of love to Jesus. This was an expression of love for the one that she loved and knew was going to die. And Jesus was probably joyful as this was happening this was the only preparation for burial Jesus would receive if you remember in the story that after Jesus is taken down from the cross he's buried without any perfume without any wrapping without any preparation in the, in the customary way that they would do which is why the women after uh, the Sabbath came to the tomb because they were going to then bring spices and prepare Jesus' body for burial even though he had already been burial. This was the only burial that Jesus would receive. This was the only honoring of his death that he would receive. Think about it. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And nobody seems to be getting it. And even the disciples are sleeping on the night that he's betrayed. And they all scatter in our, and uh, scatter when Jesus is taken and crucified. this is the only honoring that the Son of God receives for dying before he dies. Before his triumphal entry, he was prepared for burial. And I want to ask you, do you think that Jesus is worth spending $17,000 on? Do you think $17,000 is worth spending to honor Jesus, your Savior, who's about to die? I bet Mary wished she had more. If she had more, she would have given. And what we see here is unconventional love for Christ unconventional law people don't you don't see people dumping perfume on other people's heads usually do you you don't go about you don't go buy Clive Christian's Imperial Majesty just to go dump it on somebody's head right this is unconventional it's strange people think it's a waste even religious people think it's a waste but Jesus didn't think it was a waste And Mary didn't think it was a waste. Mary thought, this is the only fitting thing to do, and I wish I had more for Christ. Do we love Christ unconventionally? Do we love Christ in a way that the world thinks, what a waste? Why would you spend all that? Why would you spend all that for Him? For anyone? Or do we just love Christ religiously? in a way that's acceptable in society. Yeah, go to church and just love Christ at church, but don't get too crazy about Jesus because that's just weird, okay? I can't think of anything, and I want to ask you, can you think of anything that is more valuable than Jesus Christ and more worthy of us spending ourselves upon? I'm not suggesting you go throw your money to the wind for Jesus, okay? Don't go to a cliffside and say, okay, God, here's my money. Take it. It's for you. You can't do what Mary did. And that's the whole point of the story. Mary had a moment in time that would never come again. Never. Think about this. There would never be another time before Jesus' death and Mary saw that special opportunity and she loved him. We can't do that. Jesus is not here. So don't go throwing your money to the wind for Jesus. Okay? And it wouldn't do him any good. But, that doesn't mean that we can't love our Lord in an unconventional way now. Because there are many things that we can do. There's many things that we do possess. Many valuable things that can only be spent once. For example, your life that you have. You get to choose how are, you going to, how are you going to spend your life. There are many people who have died for Christ and the world has said, why the waste? But they didn't see it as a waste, but they saw that Christ was worthy. Your time, all of your time, you get to spend once and you can't take it back. Time is a valuable thing as we know. The world operates by rewarding people for the time that they put into things. How will you spend your time? Because that's a valuable thing that you can spend. And your money, your life, your time, even our money, we can spend for Christ. And people might think why the waste? Why would you use your life? Why would you use your time? Why would you use your money? in such an unconventional way for Jesus. Yeah, sure you can do it religiously, that's acceptable, but in an unconventional way, I don't think so. And brothers and sisters, it's our choice to think, to not be like the disciples and just assume, and just to be quick to jump to conclusions, but to think about how we should use our life, our time, and our monies, because those are the things that we can use, and other things as well. How can we use these things that are not a waste, The world might think it's a waste, but God doesn't think it's a waste. You can give them to Christ even now. Mary was not the last person to lavish love on Jesus in appreciation and honor, in appreciation and honoring of his death. She's not the last. Many people have, and you have the opportunity to love Christ as well for what he's done for you. In verse 13, Jesus Jesus honors Mary by saying, wherever the gospel is preached, in the whole world, basically the whole world is going to know about this woman. The whole world is going to know about this, that she has done. And so it is today. Here we are, Logan, Utah, 2013, and we're reading the story about Mary who loved Jesus lavishly she remains ever a reminder to us all of the worth of Jesus. Lastly, Jesus' passion was appalling. Jesus' passion was appalling, and by that I mean this, that although his passion happened because of the plan of God, we are not to miss that the Son of God was horribly mistreated by men. Right? Sometimes we can think, well, it was all part of God's plan, so it, you know, we just forget about the fact that men sinned against God and Christ was horribly mistreated by men. And I don't want us to miss that as we go through these next three chapters. The loving God, the righteous God, came from heaven to earth in the form of a man to save mankind. And he was hated, and he was despised, and he was rejected by the world. Jesus was betrayed, beaten, lied about, given an unjust trial, mocked, scourged, crucified, ridiculed. And why? Because he represented God, and he spoke the truth. If he hadn't have done those two things, he wouldn't have been treated in the way that he was. And it shows us how much the world values God and truth. Judas was indignant with the other disciples. It says in verse 14, one of the twelve, because remember, all of the twelve were indignant, but only one of them went out that night to betray Jesus. The others were indignant, but the others, even though they were indignant about what the woman had done, they were not put off by the words of Jesus. But Judas was. Judas lived three years with Jesus, traveling with him, hearing from him. And Judas had a long time had for a long time had problems with Jesus. And this incident simply tipped the scales. It was too much for Judas. It proved to be the last straw. It wasn't that Judas loved the poor, because as we know in the Gospel of John, Judas was a thief. But here's the real issue. Judas did not love Jesus like the other 11 disciples did. The other 11 disciples were often blockheads and they often got things wrong and they often didn't understand, but they loved Jesus. Judas was all those things, but he didn't love Jesus. You can read about his character in Psalm 109. And A.B. Bruce rightly comments on this incident, that a base nature, Bruce writes, a base nature would feel uncomfortable in so unworldly company, and would be glad to escape to a more congenial atmosphere. Judas could not breathe freely amid the odors of the ointment and all it signified. Okay? She just poured out that ointment. The house was filled with the ointment. Everyone's indignant. And Jesus says, this is a good work. She anointed me for my burial. This is a loving act. This is right. And Judas had enough. And so he escapes and goes to the chief priests and here we see a shocking thing in verse 15, the lowness, the baseness of Judas and the, and the leadership of Israel. He says, what will you give me and I will deliver him unto you. And it says they co- in the King James, they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. What the Greek is, they weighed it. They literally put Jesus in the balance and they said, yeah, his betrayal is worth about 30 pieces of silver. They weighed to Judas 30 pieces of silver, which in today's currency would come out to about $7,000, about the price of a used car. Many people have a hard time believing that Judas would do such a huge thing as betray Jesus for so little. But we must notice that Judas didn't demand that price. That was what they offered Judas, and he was just going to get what he could. Thus the Son of God was betrayed for practically nothing. And what a revelation of mankind this is. This is the point we need to see as we go through the Passion, is that the revelation of mankind, of mankind in the Passion is appalling. And the passion of Jesus Christ is probably the greatest witness to the sinfulness of mankind. This is the point we don't want to miss. We know it's appointed by God. But the takeaway lesson here is that the passion of Christ in history, these events, they are the greatest witness to the sinfulness of mankind. You want to prove that mankind are sinful? Point them to the passion narrative. Point them to this incident when the man who represented God in truth came, and point them to how he was treated by those who were religious. And you'll see the truth about mankind. It's our it's our greatest testimony to the sinfulness of man. Here we see the opposite of Mary. Mary spends lavishly on Jesus, and Judas sells Jesus for practically nothing. What an extreme difference. And today, such an extreme difference continues to exist. There are those who couldn't care less about Jesus. There are those who hate Jesus. And there are those today who love and honor and value Jesus. Same extreme, then and now. In conclusion, I'd like us just to reflect upon these three points this morning. Jesus' passion was appointed. Everything that we are going to read here was in the plan of God before the creation of the world. This is the purpose for the universe. God saw the world. When God decided to create the world, he knew what he was doing. And he loved the world. And he he became incarnate into the world through Jesus Christ to die for the sins of the world, laying down his life, not having it taken from him against his own will. And in the plan of God, as we've been reading, he's coming again. And it doesn't matter what men plan, but God's plan will always prevail. This is the plan of God for your life when he created this world. You know, he said, When I create this world, I know that in the 21st century there's going to be a guy named Ross. And I'm going to die for his sins in 33 AD so that he can live with me for all of eternity. Because God loves you, he died for you. And he has a wonderful plan and a future for you. It's simply for us to not trust in men's ideas and plans, but in God's. Amen? Jesus' passion was appreciated. Mary knew that he was going to die and Mary loved him and gave Jesus what she could we cannot do what Mary did but we too can love Christ for what he has done for us we can love Christ on a daily basis with our words with our prayers with our praise and we can serve Christ with our life with our money and with our time and none of it will be a waste even if the world says it's a waste not any of it will be a waste one of the famous Christian hymns that, that uh, the church sings, we say this, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for Thee. We don't do this to earn anything. We do this as Christians out of love for the one who has given us everything freely and lastly Jesus' passion was appalling in the passion we see the truth about man ever confused about whether man is sinful or not ever get into a conversation with someone on the street and they say I'm a really good person you walk away wondering whether they are or not go back and read the passion and there you'll see the truth about man but in seeing the truth about man we see the truth about God because against this truth that mankind is the enemy of God and sinful and wicked and corrupt and base and hateful, here we see against this backdrop and really against only this backdrop God's amazing grace and love for this same mankind. God is beautiful when we see how sinful man is. The passion of Jesus Christ is the core of Christianity without the passion of Jesus Christ we do not have a Messiah we have a babbler who would not be known today at all but because the passion of Christ is here it happened it's real because Jesus came because Jesus suffered and died and rose from the dead we have the Messiah we have Christ And in having Christ, we have hope, we have truth, and above all, we have God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your plan, for creating this world by Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. And we who know you agree with you that it is good. And we love you for it. And Lord, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for the Son of God coming and dying for our sins. Help us all to appreciate that more, to grasp it more, to understand it in a deeper way, to see what you have done for us. Help us to see our sins and the sinfulness of this world so that we can glory in your amazing grace. Lord, give us all a deeper understanding. We all need it none of us understand as we ought. Give us a deeper revelation as we go through these final three chapters of Matthew. Lord, help us to see the beauty of who you are in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to remember what the core of Christianity is all about. And I just pray that like Mary, we would all see what is special before us and that Lord, that we have before us an opportunity to honor you and to love you in our life. And you are worthy. And for this we give you all thanks and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.